Too often, Christians today default to binary categories, money good or money bad. But that's far too simple. The real answer is more complicated than that. The real answer is money good, but not as good as you might think. Money good, but not as good as good relations with other people and a good standing before God. That is wisdom. And that is a wonderful introduction to this section. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. What the Bible says about money is far more complicated than most Christians seem to be willing to admit. We tend to default to one extreme or the other. Some people focus on the fact that practicing the wisdom of the Bible does tend to make a person rich, whereas other people focus on the fact that it is hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. How do we hold those viewpoints together? Well, as you might imagine, it takes wisdom. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Proverbs chapter 22. The chapter divisions here are not terribly helpful. It might have made sense to include verses 1 to 16 of chapter 22 with the content in chapter 21. Or it might have made sense to set them off as their own chapter with verse 17 beginning chapter 23. However you want to think about it, there's a clear and obvious division in this chapter between verses 16 and 17. Most commentators identify verse 17 as the beginning of the third collection, which is usually given some version of the title, 30 Sayings of the Wise. And that runs through to Proverbs 24 verse 22. You will recall that the book of Proverbs begins with a nine-chapter-long prologue made up largely of speeches and poems celebrating and commending the way of wisdom. The first section of what we would call Proverbs begins in chapter 10, verse 1, and we notice there a distinct introduction prefacing that new section. Proverbs 10, 1 begins with the words, the Proverbs of Solomon. So that's a pretty clear signal that we're exiting the prologue and entering into a new collection. We observe a similar transition here. Verses 17 to 21 provide the introduction to the third collection. There is a call to pay attention, and there is an announcement that the content that follows contains 30 sayings of counsel and knowledge. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Chapter 22 begins with the last 16 verses of the second collection. Both Bruce Walke and Alan P. Ross give this section the title, Wealth and Moral Instruction, which I think suits it very well. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. Let's just pause here and notice something very interesting. I just said that the commentators generally identify wealth and moral instruction as the organizing theme for this section. And yet here is the wise father beginning his lesson on wealth by deprioritizing wealth relative to a good reputation with other people and a good standing before God. And that in itself is incredibly wise. Too often, Christians today default to binary categories, money good or money bad. 
But that's far too simple. The real answer is more complicated than that. The real answer is money good, but not as good as you might think. Money good, but not as good as good relations with other people and a good standing before God. That is wisdom. And that is a wonderful introduction to this section. Verse 2. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. Here is another good reminder. Money is good, but it doesn't alter in the least how you stand before your God and maker. We are all naked before God, and our money won't tip the scales one way or the other on Judgment Day. Verse 3. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. This verse took on a fresh urgency over the course of the recent pandemic. We had heated debates about whether it was wise and prudent to wear face coverings and to get vaccines and even to meet for a period online. And I'm sure they'll be doing research and publishing papers on COVID-19 for the rest of my lifetime. And I'm sure at some point, someone will publish something saying this measure was helpful and this measure was unhelpful. Wise people will pay attention to such things so that we can respond more effectively the next time around. But the fact remains, there is nothing inherently wrong or unfaithful about taking wise precautions to protect yourself from danger. That is the basic principle being affirmed in this proverb. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. So obviously we can argue about how dangerous COVID really was, and, and we can argue about which precautions were effective. But one thing we cannot do and must not do, given the principle being encountered here, is categorize all instincts at self and other preservation as somehow unfaithful. That is to go further than the text. In fact, that is to run counter to the text. Human life is precious. There is absolutely nothing wrong with taking prudent measures to protect it. Verse 4, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. This verse could almost serve as a summary for the book of Proverbs as a whole. If you are humble and if you fear the Lord, then your journey will likely lead you towards riches, honor, and stability. Now, of course, there are caveats to be added. Of course, there are upsets, impediments, interruptions, and interventions. But as a general rule, humility and reverence lead to riches, honor, and life. Thanks be to God. Verse 5. Thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked. Whoever guards his soul will keep far from them. Yes, God is kind and compassionate, and therefore he liberally sows thorns and snares along the path that leads to death. His desire is that none would walk upon it. Verse 6 is perhaps the best known and the most frequently misunderstood verse in the entire book. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, because this verse is so often misunderstood, and because it can function like a sledgehammer of guilt upon the hearts of parents who have rebellious children, I think it might be wise to spend an extra minute or two here. Let me provide an extended citation from Tremper Longman III that I think you will find helpful. 
He says this, it is absolutely essential to remember the nature of this saying as a proverb rather than a law, close quote. He then goes on to say, it sounds like a promise, but a proverb does not give a promise. The book of Proverbs advises its hearers in ways that are most likely to lead them to desired consequences if all things are equal. It is much more likely that a child will be a responsible adult if trained in the right path. However, there is also the possibility that the child might come under the negative influence of peers or be led astray in some other way. The point is that this proverb encourages parents to train their children, but does not guarantee that if they do so, their children will never go astray. Closed quote. We have to treat this proverb the way we have treated all the other proverbs. We understand that it is generally true that thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked, as per verse 5. But we can probably all think of some exceptions to that rule. We probably know some wicked people who've had a very smooth journey through life. We also understand that the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is generally riches, honor, and life, but we probably also know some very humble, very reverent, and very poor people. That's how Proverbs work. They give us general principles, not ironclad promises. Forgetting that here, after you have remembered it everywhere else, can lead to soul-crushing guilt. Hey, Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here for a second if I can, because I absolutely resonate with what you're saying here. I think if we fail to distinguish between proverbial wisdom and ironclad promises with respect to our kids, we are setting ourselves up for heartache. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I find myself saying frequently as a pastor is that proverbs are not promises. Hmm. They're proverbs. They are wise sayings about prudent actions that generally lead to favorable outcomes in a world designed by God. But this world designed by God is currently fallen, so all kinds of things that should be happening aren't happening. Principles of justice and righteousness are currently being resisted. So sometimes it isn't true that if you do the right things as parents, your kids will for sure follow the Lord. Your kids are human beings, so they will make responsible choices. They may choose to follow you in your love for Christ, or they may choose to go a different way. You can't control that. Of course, you can influence the outcome, but you can't determine it. Failing to understand that can absolutely wreck your soul. Hmm. Now, to be clear, you're not saying that it doesn't matter then whether we do the right things as parents or not, since, you know, the kids are going to decide to do whatever they're going to decide. We still need to do the right things, right? 100%. We need to do the right things because they're right and because we'll be held accountable to God for how we discharge our responsibilities as parents. And we need to do the right things as well because the right things are wise and therefore they increase the likelihood of favorable outcomes. But in a fallen world and when dealing with responsible human beings, it doesn't guarantee favorable outcomes. Mm, yes, and that's a very important distinction. Thanks for walking us through that. Let's jump back into the passage now at verse 7. Verse 7. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower 
is the slave of the lender. This proverb is observational in nature. It is true that poverty leads to dependence. And so the second colon contains an implicit warning. Be careful about putting yourself in a dependent posture, which is exactly what you do when you borrow money. Verse 8. Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fail. Actions have consequences in a moral universe watched over by a holy God. That's the basic idea here. The moral wiring of the universe itself pushes back against injustice. And even where that principle is resisted and obscured, you can be sure that behind that cloud, there is a watching sovereign. As the wise father has reminded us before, at the end of the day, no one gets away with anything. Verse 9, whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed for he shares his bread with the poor. We've encountered this basic principle before in Proverbs 11.24 and Proverbs 19.7. God observes and rewards generosity to the poor. And as Proverbs 21.13 says, God observes and responds negatively to those who ignore the poor. So again, it, it isn't just the moral wiring of the universe we need to be concerned about. It is also the active intervention of the Creator. God tilts the table in the direction of the generous. That's good to know. Verse 10. Drive out a scoffer and strife will go out and quarreling and abuse will cease. I can tell you as a pastor that losing one gossipy, critical, and contentious person feels like winning the lottery. It is incredible how much collateral damage such a person can cause. Now, you might say, Pastor, your attitude there sounds a bit unchristian, but I'm not sure that it does. The Apostle Paul said to Titus, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned, close quote. So a good leader, Old Testament and new, understands that if a person can't be corrected or reformed when it comes to their communication and conduct, then for the health of the community as a whole, you need to drive them out. That isn't unchristian at all. That is just wise, courageous, and compassionate leadership in a fallen world. Verse 11, he who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. Good leaders reward and promote good people. There's an implicit imperative in there for the royal son and also for his loyal subjects. We have an English proverb that reflects the same basic principle. We say, the cream rises to the top. Same idea. Rich character and gracious speech are highly valuable commodities. Those who abound in them position themselves for promotion. Verse 12. The eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the traitor. This verse complements the previous verse. Even if the king is unwise in terms of who he promotes and demotes, rest assured that the creator himself will be actively engaged in this process. He will preserve the true and root out the false, either in time or at the final judgment. Verse 13. The sluggard says, there is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. 
Lazy people exaggerate the difficulties and dangers that they face. They always have an excuse on hand to justify their inaction. Any leader of human beings needs to understand this basic principle. Verse 14, the mouth of a forbidden woman is a deep pit. He with whom the Lord is angry will fall into it. This verse offers a further reflection upon truths that were discussed in the prologue, particularly in chapters 5 to 7. There, the wise father spoke often and at length about the dangers associated with the seductive woman. The new insight here is that sometimes God punishes people by giving them over to the foolish things they're attracted to. If they fail to heed his warnings and accept his counsel, then at some point he stops striving with them. He gives them over to that which they desire. We see that, for example, in Romans 1.24. Paul says, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Close quote. It's difficult to read that without thinking of our current position as a culture. It very much feels as though God has stopped striving with us. It very much appears as though God has given us over to the foolish things we desire. Lord help. Verse 15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. This verse, of course, flies in the face of much contemporary belief and practice. The Bible teaches that all people are born with an inclination towards sin. We're born with a broken compass. We come preloaded with unhelpful desires and unreliable instincts. And therefore, the loving parent will need to apply firm and consistent discipline. The idea that children are born innocent and brilliant is a modern conceit one that gets harder to believe with every trip to Walmart. Now, of course, it should be mentioned that the application of this general principle is a matter of wisdom and prudence. Being too severe in discipline is just as unhelpful, probably more unhelpful even, than being too lax in discipline. This proverb is certainly not justifying abuse or outbursts of anger. It is simply saying, that firm corrective discipline is something parents must be resolved to apply lovingly, carefully, and appropriately to their children. Verse 16, whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. Again, nobody gets away with anything. Our Heavenly Father watches how we play the game, and at various points along the way, he enters the room and wipes all ill-gotten gains off the board. And thus, cheating, stealing, and defrauding are roads that lead to ruin. With verse 17, we enter into a whole new section. Verses 17 to 21 provide an invitation and introduction to the third collection, a collection that is often referred to as The 30 Sayings of the Wise. Verse 17. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your heart to my knowledge. For it will be pleasant if you keep them within you, if all of them are ready on your lips, that your trust may be in the Lord. 
I have made them known to you today, even to you. Have I not written for you thirty sayings of counsel and knowledge, to make you know what is right and true, that you may give a true answer to those who sent you? In this brief introduction, the wise father is summoning his son to further and deeper attention. And to encourage that, he provides three complementary motivations. He says that the following content will be pleasant to consume and to communicate. It will deepen his walk with the Lord, and it will better equip him to serve as an envoy of righteousness and truth. He refers to this collection as 30 sayings of counsel and knowledge, which many scholars point out indicates some kind of dependence upon, or at least awareness of, the Egyptian wisdom tradition. There was a well-known work called The Wisdom of Amenemope, which had 30 chapters and the stated purpose of equipping people to give an answer and to serve as envoys of wisdom and truth. Solomon appears to be self-consciously adopting that basic form, which is in itself a reminder that we don't need to categorically reject every insight and innovation of the natural man. As I mentioned in the introductory episode, the Bible acknowledges that there is wisdom to be found in other cultures and other nations outside of the special revelation of God. I cited Alan P. Ross in that episode saying, Inspiration does not exclude the divine use of existing material, but in Scripture, it takes on a new force, a higher meaning, and becomes authoritative. Closed quote. And that seems to be the case here. We meet the first of these 30 sayings in verses 22 to 23. Do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. To be poor in most societies is to be vulnerable. We've talked before about how wealth does provide some security in life. It can't protect you from everything but it can protect you from some things. The poor, however, are completely vulnerable, and therefore they represent a tempting target for the strong and the rich. Here, however, we're being told that the Lord himself will plead the cause of the poor and will personally avenge any wrongs done to them. Remember, foundational to the worldview of the wise father is the idea that ultimately no one gets away with anything. God sees, God cares, and God comes. Conduct yourself accordingly. The second saying of the wise is found in verses 24 to 25. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Remember, the wise father has already warned the son about people who can talk their way into a beating. Well, here the son is being reminded that some people are so good at that that they can talk their way into two beatings, one for them and one for you. So, have nothing to do with such people. They are bad company and they are bad influences. The third saying of the wise is found in verses 26 to 27. Be not one of those who give pledges, who put up security for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you? We've talked about this before. The wise father is telling the son not to serve as a guarantor for loans. You can lose your shirt backing the business ventures of people you don't know very well. 
I'm sure a royal son in those days was often being asked to invest in this or that, or, or at least to guarantee a loan here or there so that a childhood friend could start a business or buy a piece of property. Saying yes once is foolish. Saying yes twice is like playing Russian roulette. Saying yes again and again and again is financial suicide. You'll be lucky to still have a bed to sleep in. The fourth saying is found in verse 28. Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. Now, most immediately, this proverb is saying that even kings should respect the personal and tribal property of other people. We think of the story of Naboth's vineyard, for example. King Ahab was wicked for plotting to steal that piece of land, and he paid for that villainy with his life. So that's the main idea here. However, to move a boundary marker also appears to have referred in a more general way to the arrogant erasure of any ancient tradition. So Alan P. Ross says here, the general teaching is that ancient traditions, if right, were to be preserved, closed quote. It is reckless and arrogant to disparage and deconstruct all that you have inherited from your ancestors. Young people in this culture need to stop and hear that. Reformation is good. Thinking, evaluating, revitalizing, all good. But reckless, heedless, boundless deconstruction is arrogant. To assume that everyone in the past was stupid and wicked and foolish and that only you know what is right and true and good is delusional. Slow down. Show some respect. Listen. Seek to understand and only make changes in the direction of Scripture. The fifth and final saying, in chapter 22 anyway, is found in verse 29. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. No matter what you do in life, if you do it very well, generally speaking, you will rise to the highest summit of human society. So find something you love to do. Find something that is valuable. Find something that other people need and do it to the best of your ability. Refine your craft. Sharpen your skill set. Pursue excellence and you will gain riches and honor. That was good advice 3,000 years ago. And despite all our problems as a society, it remains good advice still today. Thanks be to God. Well, that's all the time we have for today, friends. As always, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 